0: Sometimes the no's have nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with you not being good enough or talented enough or the content not being the right thing. There are so many other factors that go into someone saying no to you. Sometimes if you just keep pushing, there'll be some sort of change in the air and, and the yeses will come eventually.
1: Welcome to the podcast that helps speakers and writers like you grow their impact and income. This is Stage, Page, and Screen.
2: Yes. There he is. Yes. Hello. Good evening. Good afternoon, and welcome to the show. This is the show where
1: we don't introduce the people we're actually <laughs> interviewing, right?
2: <laughs> I think it was Ira Glass
1: who <laughs> first said that that is a great idea.
2: That's I think it was Ira or President George Washington. He's mm. was one mm. of those two. He's
1: excellent podcaster.
2: <laughs> He's fantastic. Never tells a lie. No. I think that's what sets him apart. The wooden,
1: the wooden teeth give uh, difficulty to his producer. You gotta, you gotta edit around that.
2: Creates a lisp. That's, there's no, there's no doubt about that.
1: I just yanked all my teeth. I thought, you know what?
2: <laughs> Dude, I thought those were veneers. I could yeah, tell. Yeah.
1: I mean, three episodes in here, but I'm committed to the craft. I just yanked all the teeth. <laughs> so anyway, that's our, that's our introduction of today's guest, Mickey let's, Rowe.
2: Well, let's go ahead and shut this down. Mm. Um, Oh, see, that's that's helpful. That's, yeah. <laughs> good,
1: good. Professional. this
2: all in, Jesse. That's how they do it.
1: Yeah. Jesse, uh, and your role in the podcast remind everyone <laughs> sound quality. That's right. But okay. did you hear the
2: quality of that alarm?
1: Teaching by example.
2: 32 bit perfect alarm amazingness. Oh, here he is. Hey, there we go. There he is. There
1: he is. There he is. Did Jesse boot you out of the lobby? What happened? I'm not sure it's
0: still, you know, on my end, it still looked like I was in, but it could have been my Wi-Fi or something. No. You guys just let me know how it's seeming from, from your end. And I'm happy to connect via my, uh, my cell phone hotspot. If that's going to be better Wi-Fi or something, <laughs> Any, if that's the issue.
1: Anytime you have a choice between blaming your Wi-Fi and blaming Jesse, you want to blame Jesse. That's
2: right. That's <laughs> okay. right. Noted. Yes. Noted. That's, yes. That's my legal the general power theme is far less than Verizon. Most of our okay, shows You might these lose days. me for
0: a moment. I might have to reconnect here. Dear God. Oh, nope,
1: there it is. There it
2: is. <laughs> yes. Listener, uh, Mickey Rowe, our guest today, is frozen in time. Yeah. Yeah. He's, this is the okay, second time. I'm back. Oh, oh wow. he's back.
1: So, so I want to start here with you, Mickey. T- tell me the story, because I don't know this story. Tell me the story of how you got the book deal for what would end up being fearlessly different an autistic actor's journey to Broadway's biggest stage. How did that book deal come together?
0: Yeah, so I, it was during the pandemic and I, up until that point, had only ever really made money by performing live in front of groups of people. Um, So I all of a sudden had a lot of free time on my hands and thought that it would be a great idea to use that time to write a book i'm a, I'm a really big believer in that we you should always be planting seeds for the future. Um, and sometimes those seeds bloom into something really awesome. sometimes they don't, but it's not my job to worry about or know what seeds are gonna sprout, only to know, oh, I'm only that I keep planting the seeds every day. So I decided to write a book and I actually wrote a children's book first. If my cat is scratching at the door. Can you all hear that through my microphone?
1: A little bit. We but we love the cat. It's a, good okay, I'm happy cat. to Why don't I op, if it's okay
0: with you, I'm going to open the door. And he's so going to right he's gonna put the cat to sleep right now. He's <laughs>
1: going to put the cat to sleep. I'm
0: just going to open the door and I'll be right not, back. It's a white tiger. It's an actually a white tiger. <laughs> yes. it, is, it is a white tiger.
1: Okay. Named all Kitty. Right. Okay. Stand by. We got it.
0: Great. Have, I am back. The door is gotta, open.
1: We have a pending conflict with a tiger.
0: Here she comes. All right. (laughs) If you see blood and gore in just a second, call 911 for me or something. Will do. Um, Not again. So I'm a really firm believer in planting seeds every day. Always my job isn't to know whether those seeds are going to bloom or produce fruit or anything like that. My job's just to figure out every day one small way that I can plant a seed for my future self, invest in my future self. Um, so during the pandemic, I had all this free time and decided to write a children's book. Um, and I really wanted it to be the world's first universally designed children's book, Mm -hmm. which in my mind meant that every page, the font on every page would be 18 point sans serif font. It would also have embossed braille on it. Um, and a little image description under each picture that a parent or teacher could read out loud. Um, and that was my thought for a book. I thought it was a really good idea. Obviously, it wasn't.
1: No one wanted, <laughs> no wanted. title? What was the working title of this book? Do you recall?
0: I think it was either Fearlessly Different or Our Differences are Our Strengths, same, or um My differences are my super superpowers, something in the exact same realm as. The title we ended up with. But no one wanted the book. Um, one agent, however, said, this isn't right for me. But do you have any other ideas for a book that you're working on? So I just told them my story and said, I'd love to consider doing a memoir if you think that would be a better fit for the market. Um, and they said yes. So we, we did the memoir fearlessly different. It was, my gosh, writing a memoir is such an exhausting journey. So draining, so exhausting. Um, and it's not like performing on stage, too, because on stage sometimes we tell really vulnerable stories about ourselves. Uh, and we have to share a lot of emotional hard things that happened in our lives. But usually we get that full circle in the moment where yes. we we then share all the uplifting things and all the reasons why this was actually beneficial for us. We get a huge standing ovation. We get that instant feedback that makes it okay. And when you're writing a book, you're just sitting in this one awful chapter for like a month at a time with no one to applaud you or give you a pat on the back. <laughs> so it was really, it's it's exhausting, but... Uh, but we did it. It was not without its own failures, though. Particularly, most of the failures I think came after the book was written, uh, and even after it was published. But, but I really still enjoyed it, and I'm really glad I wrote the book.
1: Absolutely, it's a great book. And th- I mean, the fact that you got a book deal, that you got the book published, is an incredible feat in and of itself. Many speakers, writers—that's that's on their bucket list. That's a dream for them. Talk me through sort of the numbers of it. I mean, how many how many agents were you cold emailing, cold calling until you found this one that you know after a pivot from a kids book to mm-hmm. you know a, a kids book to an adult book was willing to take a risk and and take a shot with you?
0: Absolutely. So I didn't do any cold calls, but I cold emailed probably maybe close to between 50 and 100 different agents. The really hard thing with a book that can sometimes be different from speaking events or live events is that these agents might get back to you six months after you emailed them. You send them your email and if they like what you sent them uh they they may not even reply they may just add your print your book off and add it to their to relist um and get back to you after maybe a month or two Re- long longer times than i was used to waiting um so i got a lot of no's I got a lot of just no replies um but and then it's so funny how the world works sometimes or how just the zeitgeist things are in the air um, how the universe works. But all of a sudden, then I think I got five replies saying yes, all within the same week, oh, wow. after maybe six or seven months of no's, no's, no's. All of a sudden, I got lots of yeses at the same time. And I hadn't changed the email that I was sending at all. The book was still the same. So I think it just shows sometimes, sometimes the no's have nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with you not being good enough or talented enough or the content not being the right thing. It can have, there are so many other factors that go into someone saying no to you. Um, so that perseverance can be really, really key that um, sometimes if you just keep pushing, there'll be some sort of change in the air and and the yeses will come eventually sometimes.
1: Yeah, that, that perseverance and willing to kind of pivot your approach as something that has served you, you know, into your career, into everything that you're up to now. I want to, I want to kind of break down the hundred emails because, you know, I I think it's going to be oddly inspiring for folks to understand Mm -hmm. kind of. So when you sent out the hundred emails, were those hundred emails kind of specifically about the kids book or W- were the hundred were the hundred emails after one of the agents had inspired you to maybe pitch it as a memoir? Yeah.
0: So the majority of the emails were for the kids' book.
1: Understood. Un- understood. Which I still
0: think would be a good idea, but I think publishing industry just gets nervous when you're talking to them about Embossing pages with sure, Braille or Sure. They're just
1: they thinking get the Wait, Wait, how expensive is this gonna be to print exactly? Exactly. Yeah. Um All right, so you you send a hundred emails primarily about this kid's book. Yeah. You eventually get five yeses. So so with this remaining balance of ninety-five emails, what what would be kind of your honest guess of out of those ninety five, how many just straight up no's did you get versus how many they completely ghosted you? They never got back to you. Never heard from them at all. Mm-hmm. I and would you, say if you have a pie
2: chart, that'd be especially helpful.
1: Yes, Mickey. please. A pie please. chart. I just wish
0: for, for Josh. Uh, Josh will make the pie chart. I <laughs> okay. will. You go ahead. I've posted on his website. Um, I'm ready. I would say probably maybe one out of ten emailed me back saying it wasn't a right fit. Maybe even one out of five emailed me back saying no. Um, And the majority of them, there was just no response or sometimes an auto response of some kind.
1: All right. So we're talking then, we we got 85 ghost, Mm -hmm. 10 straight up thanks, but no. And then five, a deluge in a single week of, hey, we're interested and we want to work with you.
0: Yes. And to speak to that pivot that you mentioned, I do think all five of the yeses were for the memoir. So I think that, um, Allie Helligers at Stimola, who's an awesome, brilliant woman, is the one who told me, you know, I'm not interested in this. What else do you have? Mm -hmm. And I sent her a pitch for my memoir. A few of the others, I think that had, Actually replied to me saying, "Thanks so much, but this isn't quite what I'm looking for." I rep- I replied to those emails that maybe I'd received a month or two ago, saying, "No worries, thank you so much for the reply. Here's one other, one other um, book that might be more up your alley."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so you do, even though I really had my heart set on this universally designed kids' book. It was sort of my baby in, in some ways. You do there's this saying that I've heard, hold on tightly, let go lightly. That when you have an idea, you have to hold on really tightly to that idea mm-hmm. and fight for it as hard as you can. But then you also have to know when to just let it go, to to let go and pivot, even if something was near and dear to your heart. And so it really was that that I held on really tightly to that kid kid's book. I fought for it as much as I could and I was really, had a lot of persistence there. Uh, but then when I received the feedback that something else might be a better fit, I was ready and willing and excited to let, <laughs> let go of the kid's book, pivot and, um, and reply with no problem. How about this? And, the, and then the memoir is what started getting the replies.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting from the author's perspective, because you, you kind of, you have to sell and pitch yourself and convince two entirely different entities Mm -hmm. before you're actually going to see your book printed online or on a shelf somewhere. So kind of hoop number one you have to go through is getting an agent yeah to get on board with you and then hoop number two, together, you and the agent then go and shop it to the various publishers and try to find you know someone who will publish the book and and a publisher that gets the vision for the book and is the ideal right fit when you were pitching the memoir specifically to the agents, so hoop mm-hmm. number one, what were you what were you sending them?
0: So I, I sent them the first 50% of the memoir that I had written. Um, I know that there's, I I read that often with nonfiction, you don't write, you're not supposed to write the book in advance that you send a proposal. Um, so I sent the proposal, I, I wrote up a proposal, I did a lot of research figuring out, what goes into a proposal. And it was actually pretty straightforward. So I sent the proposal. There are a ton of outlines for proposals that you can find online. And then I sent um, the first half of the memoir as well, in addition with that proposal.
1: Um, And the, the, the first half of the memoir, that was sort of like the, this was one document you're sending this proposal, but whereas a traditional Proposal might have one or two chapters. You were sending five or six chapters.
0: I believe so. I think that what I had done, it, so my story kind of begin. My story kind of follows me on one specific dream that I had. One goal that I was trying to accomplish, and there's a point where there's sort of a cliffhanger where you're not sure whether this. It looks like the goal is not going to be mm-hmm. accomplished. Um, in the way that I originally thought. And there's this sort of cliffhanger. So I think I sent up until then and then didn't nice. send the second half of the nice. books.
1: Nice. Nice. Um, thinking if someone reads that and they don't say, what the heck happened, then...
0: Hopefully. That was my goal.
1: Right. <laughs> Let them at least reply
0: wanting the second half. Um, we got so many... My agent... So my agent Allie did all of the emailing and communications um, for... Pitching the book to publishers, and she told me that she got more excited, positive no's than she has ever gotten before, and that it was really confusing to her. Um, oftentimes she would receive no's that were really short or brief. Um, often she just wouldn't receive replies from people. Um, but she received so many replies saying, This is so great. I'm so excited about this. This is such a great, such a great story. So important, so needed, not the right fit for me. Mm. Um, How wonderfully
2: depressing. How exactly, how completely wonder, almost more depressing (laughs) in some ways. I'm curious, Uh, within that, within that body of your, of what you're sending out, which is brilliant to leave the cliffhanger there, like how much, how much of that are you putting forth is your work? And how much of it is you're establishing? Here's my following because you, you it, I would think you would have had a significant following by this point, just given what you've accomplished in your career. Look at the show notes for more. I'm curious. Does that- yeah,
0: I made the mistake, and I think both um, both my agent and I leaned really heavily into the work, um, which is not always not actually. I think. The best approach, not always the most important thing. Because the thing with books when you're publishing them is the publisher is really relying on you to sell the book. They aren't going to, unless you're really lucky and have have the book that they want to become the next New York Times bestsellers, they're not normally going to do the majority of the work to sell the book. They're going to hope that you are doing that. My agent had been, her agency had been really lucky to publish a lot of really awesome young adult books. Um, Stimola did the Hunger Games trilogy and a lot of really awesome books um, where I think probably the the work spoke for itself. And then the publishers did decide that, yes, we're putting in all the work to market this. In hindsight, I think I should have more talked about my speaking speaking engagements in front of big audiences and uh, what percentage of those audiences I can get to purchase the books at the events. I think I should have relied a lot more on how I can sell this book independent from them. But it, I did mostly speak about the work and why the work was important and, and valuable, I thought.
1: Mm-hmm. So Mickey, I want to, I want to slowly go through kind of the four stages of the book. Uh I'm going to lead you through these four stages. And I want to hear from you sort of your emotional mindset during each of these stages. Sure. Because writing a book, publishing a book is a roller coaster, as all three of us know. And what you, looking back what you wish you would have done differently at each of these stages and looking back what you feel like, Hey, I got a couple things wrong, but that, you know, that piece of it, I got right. So I'll lead you through each of these mm-hmm. four stages, but I'm going to break down the four stages like this, getting the book deal, writing the actual book, getting feedback from your editor on the book and then mm-hmm. editing the book and then publishing and promoting and the launching of the book. Yeah. So let's start with this first stage. When you, with your agent, went out, y'all officially line a book deal, talk to me about your mindset, the euphoria, what you were thinking, and now looking back, how you would kind of sober-mindedly caution yourself as to what getting a book deal does and does not mean absolutely. so when i when I got the book
0: deal for my book, I think that both my agent and I had a pretty realistic sense of what this book deal would mean. Um, my We retained the rights to the audiobook, so just for reference or clarity, um when when we sold my book, to the publisher it came with a I think a one thousand dollar advance or a two thousand dollar advance which is really small in terms of book deals um, like this. When we sold the audiobook which we sold separately to um, recorded books uh, it came with a twenty thousand dollar advance so so that really helped me to understand that, I'm going to have to do a lot of the legwork. If if they're only going to put in a $1,000, $2,000 advance for the physical book, I'm going to have to be doing a lot of the legwork here. Um, I had looked at a lot of the other books that this publisher had published. Uh, They definitely all had such great information in them. Uh, Really great information. Uh, This publisher is really pro at publishing really information-based nonfiction guides that are really helpful for a lot of people. Um, They also publish a lot of textbooks. Because my book, I was hoping for it to be marketed slightly different than a textbook might be marketed, I realized that I was going to have to do a lot of this work myself. The cover of the book... uh, was a struggle. Because whereas the graphic designers who work in-house at this publisher publish a lot of textbooks, uh, hiking guides, you know, when you go to the bookstore and you see, I don't know, top 20 hikes in California, right? Those... I'm
1: probably- sorry, your, your book was not a hiking guide? I must have I read the wrong book. You bought the one, wrong one, yeah. Josh. <laughs> the,
0: the, other,
1: the other Mickey Rowe.
0: No wonder, I was wondering
1: why all my
0: speaking engagements, they were introducing me so funny. That's right. (laughs) They were were so surprised by my speech.
1: (laughs) Yes, celebrated and renowned hiker. Mickey Hiker. hiker.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So they, when they had shown me the cover art, uh, they showed me maybe five proposed cover arts for my book. um, And my agent and I both got a little bit of a, pit in our stomach when we saw it, not that they weren't appropriate covers for many, many books, but we just didn't know if they were going to sell our, this book in the right way. Um, we, act, we had a lot of phone calls where we thought, okay, how can we convince them that we're gonna be a, we're going to be able to do a better job at designing this cover than they are? How can we tactfully have this conversation in a way that's not going to hurt their feelings or make them feel offended? Uh, so in the end we actually had a an autistic graphic designer uh design the cover of our book and we just pitched to them, you know what, because of the content of the book, how special would it be to be able to um have an autistic graphic designer design the art as well? Um so we we were constantly pivoting, constantly trying to rethink, okay, we know where we know what we need to get. We know we know what we need for this book to be have a chance at being successful. How are we going to make that happen given with the given circumstances we have? I think it's really one of the biggest pitfalls I think people have when working on stage on the page or on screen is not being honest with themselves about the reality of the room they're actually in, the reality of what's actually happening. Um, if I had gone into this mindset with my publisher, thinking that, convincing myself that this was the equivalent of being published by Scholastic or Simon and Schuster, or one of those big five, um, I would not have been being honest with myself about the room I was actually in and uh, if i'm directing a show for instance right and i i have in my head that i have this million dollar set design set um and i i because i want my actors to be a certain way i have in my head that i'm directing all these brilliant oscar winning movie stars in my head right i'm not being real about the room i'm actually in i'm not I'm not creating something that's true to the moment, to the room I'm in, to the people I'm working with. Um, and so it's really important, I think, when you're working with other people to actually realize what their strengths are. not not who is this imaginary person I wish I was working with or who who where, what is this imaginary book I wish I was selling in marketing, What is the actual book I have? Who are the actual people I'm working with? and what are their strengths so that I can one uplift their strengths and two, if there are then holes where maybe no one in the room has the certain skill set, no one in the room has what I need, how can, how can I fill in those gaps? What are ways to fill in those gaps? And I think you can only do that if you are really honest with yourself about um, about about the reality rather than being able to convince yourself of a fantasy, of a dream uh, mm-hmm. that you wish this was, that it might not actually be in reality.
1: So looking, looking back on this deal portion of it, mm-hmm. you know, and we're not, we're not trying to speak ill of your publisher.
0: No, great publisher that does sells a really specific, awesome kind of nonfiction.
1: Of course. But, but looking back on that opportunity, you know, do you, do you look back on that and go, you know, maybe this wasn't a major league publisher, but this was a way for me to publish my first book. Mm-hmm. Prove myself, uh, earn some credibility—not as a performer, which you had already earned, not as a speaker, which you had already earned, but but as a writer, which that was that was a new field for you. Or looking back, do you wish? Maybe I wish I would have waited, not said yes to the first publisher, and waited until a publisher came along, and maybe maybe your platform was positioned where a publisher would come along that was more suited to publishing memoirs?
0: Yes. A little bit of both for sure. A little bit of both. I am really grateful for the opportunities my publisher has given me. I'm really grateful for the book they produced. I, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful book they produced. I also do wonder I'm as Josh knows Jesse I'm really not a patient person that is a skill that I need to work on daily is my patience uh and and I,
1: really I had in my head you, that I really wish I really you'd wanted hurry this. up with your patience Mickey I wish you should hurry up
0: with it I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to <laughs> to get patient as quickly as I can
1: Sorry I'm encouraging bad behavior. <laughs> no. know so I
0: um I do wish that I'd been more patient And that I had maybe, that my agent and I had maybe thought both of us together to pause, re, to, to, what's the word? Re.
1: Like reconsider.
0: Sure. Reconsider how we had been pitching the book. I wish maybe when we had been getting all those really enthusiastic yeses, but not for me and my publisher and my editor was telling me how unusual that was for her. I wish maybe we had had a meeting to, to just say, okay, so if this is the situation, people are really claiming to be really excited, claiming to really like it, but saying it's not for them. What, what is the missing piece here uh, in their minds? What, what is causing them to ultimately say no? And how can we provide that for them Mm. rather than, just, just accepting it as a no, uh, and, and saying, great, we're, we'll reach out to 20 more people or 10 more people. I, I wish before we had continued reaching out, we had said, why are they saying no? What is their objection? And how can we, how can we help the future people to not have that same objection?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting now being on the literary agent side of things, Mm-hmm. I get those enthusiastic no's as well for some of the projects we're shopping. Yeah. And part of me reads those as the publisher wants to stay in the good graces of an agent or Mm -hmm. author so that if the next project, the agent's shopping or the next project that the author writes they don't have a bad taste in their mouth of like, you know, this publisher said, piss off. We don't want your project. Right. And so it's like, we'll shop it around town to everybody except for those jerks that yeah. were super rude to me. I, yeah. So it's hard for me to parse out how much is, is them sort of being polite versus I find the ones where they're like, this is great. It isn't for me. You know, here's a, here's like a piece of advice I would have for it if it, if it was something I was going to shop, I mm-hmm. my, my personal assessment is like those, those folks are more genuinely interested in Absolutely. the project and wish they could say, yes, it's just, it's just not for them. Uh,
0: and I will say there were a lot of, or Josh, you will know this terminology better than I do. Um, but when a, an editor takes your book to the, weekly meeting mm-hmm. where they pitch the book and the marketing team and all the other teams say, yes, we think this book will sell or no, we don't think this book will sell. So it made it to a lot of those meetings yeah where they'd pitched it to the powers that be and then said no afterwards. Um, about, yes, I totally agree with, with you that honesty and feedback is more loving uh than uh than people being overly enthusiastic and not actually giving you any advice or help or honesty that could help you to grow better.
1: Yeah. It, all right. So you you get the deal, and now it's like, all right, cool. You you got the deal. You got six months, nine months, twelve months to write the entire manuscript. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk me through the the emotions of that, the the practices you look back on, you know, how disciplined were you with your writing? How disciplined, looking back, do you wish you were? If a, you know, if a close friend got a book deal and now it's time for them to actually write the book, what what would you advise them?
0: Yeah, I think I put a lot more pressure on myself with the second half of the book because now people actually were going to read it. For the first half of the book, you know, no one's necessarily going to read any of this that I'm writing. Second half, yeah, people are going to read it. And I have a date that people are going to be reading it on. (laughs) And I think that actually caused me the second half of the book not to be as good, honestly, as the first half of the book. I think the first half of the book is so much better, so much more well-written than the second half of the book. So I would have advised myself to actually slow down and maybe take a break from the book even for for a little bit uh, and then come back to it there's this uh, there's this book called the artist's way i'm not sure if either of you have written it but one of the things that is suggested in this book the only the the one thing that really stuck with me is uh, to take yourself on artist dates that, that when the one time when you think the one time when i think there's no way that i could possibly take a break from all this hard pavement pounding that I'm doing. There's no way that I could not be in the theater for a day. There's no way that I could not be emailing schools for a day. That's actually the moment that I need to go take a day and step away from it. That's actually the moment when I need to go take myself on an artist's date (laughs) Uh, where I might say, you know, what would I do if I was taking myself out on a date uh, if I was going to do something that just was playful and fun for me, what would I do? Maybe I would go for a walk in the park with an audiobook. Maybe I would take myself out to a coffee shop and then just like, I don't know, go to a museum. Who knows? And I wish that I had, when I was feeling that stress and pressure of, oh, now people are actually going to read this, I need to write the second half the book, I wish I'd taken myself out on a few artist dates, reframed and then come back with a clear mind and with more ideas. You know, as speakers as as people who are on stage writing books, we're not writing books for the most part about writing books. We're not we're not speaking to our audience about here's what it's like to be a public speaker. We're speaking to our audiences about life. And if we don't then give ourselves the opportunity to live life ourselves, to have those experiences ourselves, we're not only robbing ourselves, but we're robbing our audience. So to always remember that the things you do in your life, the things you experience in your life, the things you go out to do for fun with your family are actually making you a better speaker, are actually making you a better writer uh, than just always sitting in front of a computer typing, emailing, refining your speech all the time, that our, our lived experiences, allowing ourselves to have a life actually increased. It makes us better speakers because that's, because that's what we're trying to portray on stage is life. We're trying to advise people on life.
1: Agreed hundred percent. Yeah. I think the, I, I think, I think the proximity to not all of the stories, but some of the stories you're telling on stage how recently they happened. That really comes across in your personal enthusiasm for telling those stories. You know, you see so many speakers in education and corporate. They did something remarkable thirty years ago, and the and the event truly was remarkable. But then they spend thirty years just going and telling that same story, and, and the story is remarkable. The feat, the thing they did, the thing they cured or conquered or overcame is indeed remarkable. But, but as a speaker, it gets really difficult to not become sort of embittered or bored of telling that story mm-hmm. if you're also not going out and trying to accomplish or overcome or rethink new things. And, and you know, maybe you never win another Olympic gold medal or whatever the equivalent is. But with some of those speakers, you can see a bitterness of, you know, I had that one thing 30 years ago and now I have to go talk about it forever. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very true to be out there living and experiencing and trying and failing and repeating and and weaving those moments in as well, as well as the Olympic moments, but weaving those fresher,
2: newer moments in. I think, I think people want to hear a, a student practitioner more than they want to hear the... Just the expert who, yeah, like you said, accomplished something great and now can just live off that story. But someone who's living a great story in every aspect of their lives, I mean, that's the, they've got longevity. They've got all kinds of good stuff come out of that.
0: And also feel free to disagree with me me here, Jesse. Um, I disagree Josh, with you. Josh.
1: I disagree with you already. Preemptively, okay. I'd like to. Disagree. Well, I'll say it
0: anyway, though. Well, I'll no, say no, it anyway. No. Oh, I'm going to mute you. Then go ahead. <laughs> I think I'll, yes, yes, and yes to everything that Josh and Jesse just said. Also, even if, even if you your speech never sign, like hugely changes over mm. 30 years, yeah. Even if. You're, you're trying to do all these other things and none of it actually makes it into the speech. I still think, you know, if we are saying the same speech in the same way for 30, it, it's our job to make it new every single time, to make it fresh every single time and to find little, little things that resonate differently for us every time, even if Even if no one else would ever notice, even if let's say this isn't the case, but let's just say my wife came to every speech I ever did. She may never notice the differences from day to day in the things that I'm saying. But for me, for me to stay awake, active, to genuinely be having that connection with people in the audience, individuals in the audience, it is so important for me that I'm allowing the things that happen every day the phone call that I just got off of 20 minutes before I went to sound check or a joke that one of my kids told me on Zoom in the in the hotel room before I went to bed if I'm not letting those affect the delivery of my speech even slightly in ways that only I will ever notice I'm not truly being in the moment I'm not and I'm not doing my job you know when I'm on stage as an actor doing plays, which are different than, it's a different job than uh, being a speaker. But a lot of times with these plays, believe it or not, they are so rehearsed and they want the same exact show every night. The stage manager genuinely has a stopwatch and is timing act one Mm. and timing act two with this stopwatch. And if either of those, if, if anything changes by more than two minutes, maybe a minute, 30 seconds, they're going to come leave a note for you and let you know. Because their job is to maintain the show that the director directed, maintain the show that happened on opening night, and make sure that the show that happened on opening night is identical to the show that people are going to see on closing night. So it's my job as an actor then And also my job as a speaker, I think, to, okay, great. Those are the given circumstances. I need to maintain this show in ways where the stage manager is never going to, is going to feel like it's the same show from night to night. While at the same time, for me in my head, making it feel as different and new and fresh
1: every single night.
2: Hey gang, we'll be right back.
1: All right. So let me pitch you something. Are you someone that wants to launch and grow a speaking business? Maybe it's time to write and publish that book. Perhaps you want to create and sell your online course. Well, I've put together a free on-demand training video for you. It's not going to promise you the moon. It's not going to say it's going to happen quickly or without tears or sacrifice. But I'll pragmatically lay out for you exactly how to chart a course to do all these things we just talked about. You can find this free on-demand training video at stagepagescreen.com. That's stagepagescreen.com. This is a brilliant on-ramp into your insights from someone who performed on stage to someone who's now speaking on stage. Uh, for the for the fellow OCD among us, I promise we will circle back to these final two stages mm-hmm. of a book. But 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 talk me through some of these because you're right as a as a performer you are saying the same thing every night and you have to make it fresh and interesting for you otherwise that will come across to the audience how do you fold that mindset into speaking even though it might not be the same each and every time it's probably quite similar how do you mm-hmm. fold in some of the stuff you've learned as a performer into your craft as a speaker?
0: You know, I think my biggest lesson, my biggest takeaway that transfers over is every single thing that happens while you're on stage, from the moment you take the stage till the moment that you have left the stage, every single thing that happens is a gift to you. And you need to see everything that happens As being a gift. I'll give one example from how that looked on stage. And then an example from how that on stage as an actor. And then I'll give an example of how that looked on stage as a speaker. I was doing a show once at, and this theater had me riding on this very tall giraffe unicycle, a five foot tall unicycle. Um, And I was wearing these Converse high top shoes and juggling these three knives. This was Death of a Salesman. Is that correct? Okay. Death of a sale- Death of a salesman. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was not. I think it was High School Musical. The music. Disney's High School Musical. Something silly. Um, so I'm on this unicycle, and this one night, all of a sudden, I feel my shoelace around my shoe getting tight. My shoe is getting tighter and tighter and tighter around my foot. And mm-hmm. the audience actually saw what was happening before I noticed. They were all gasping and I'm like, whoa, I must be really impressive today. <laughs> Listen to them all gasp. I look down and I see that my shoe has completely tied itself to the chain, that the the shoelace got stuck inside the chain and gear of the unicycle pedals and my feet are tied to it. And to put this in perspective of exactly how bad this was, Normally, if I'm on a giraffe unicycle and I fall off, it's no big deal. It's not like a bicycle where you're kind of stuck on the thing. If I fall off, I'm landing on my feet, always landing on my feet, which is why you can ride really tall unicycles and it's not that dangerous. All of a sudden now, (laughs) my feet are tied to the unicycle about halfway up. If I'm coming down, the only thing that's going to stop my fall is my face. So I could not continue, did not know what to do, was completely stuck. But I made it, I had a volunteer up on stage and I made it about the volunteer and I said, can I please have another volunteer as if it was the volunteer that fucked up? Uh, Can I swear? (laughs) Too late, I did. (laughs) Um, I, and I had them use the knife to cut my, to cut the shoelace out of the chain and finish the routine. That's not some, that was a problem. That was something that went wrong on stage. But it actually made their routine so much better. That was probably Mm. the best that that routine ever went in the show all of the hundreds and hundreds of times that I did it. And it's unrepeatable because I think when we when we're in at a live event, when we're gathering together with people, you know, the audience doesn't want to knowingly acknowledge that you give the same speech once or twice a week, they don't want to knowingly acknowledge that you just, (laughs) that what they're seeing is not that special and is the same thing that they could show up to a different location and see a week from now. They want to feel like they are seeing something that no one has ever gotten to see before and that no one will ever get to see again. And that what they got to be a part of was really unique and special. So that's why I think it is so important that we always always come at it with the approach from the moment I step on stage to the moment I leave the stage. Every single thing that happens is a gift, is truly a gift that was given to you to be able to make this experience more special and more unique. I I remember, I think, gosh, last month I was doing a um, a speech and the batteries ran out on this microphone that I'd been using. Probably... Two minutes, three minutes into this into the thing. Oh man. The batteries die. Uh that's always the case. Like oh, it's always the batteries in the mic at these speaking events I've, <laughs> I've found. Um that's a gift though. Like, what an awesome gift because as long as you stay present and fun, as if if you get worried about it and are like, ah oh, crap, this is awful. Okay, well. Let's pause the whole thing and figure this out. Uh, sorry that this bad experience happened. That's what the audience will receive, right? But if you stay really lighthearted and have fun with it, and are open to the adventure, and are excited to be on this unique adventure with the people in the room, they're going to have fun. They're gonna they're gonna think that was so awesome that the mic stopped working because it was a unique experience that was just for us. No one else has ever gotten to experience this before. As long as you are happy hearted, open hearted, and truly see it as a gift, um, then nothing can go wrong in your speeches, I think.
1: Mm. There's, There's something I see you do as a speaker, Mickey, that not every kind of theatrically trained actor can translate to speaking which is, and I'm, I'm not a trained actor, so this is kind of my interpretation of it, but I've seen certain actors move into speaking and in acting, it can sometimes be, you know, about big, grand sort of gestures, mm. movements, these sorts of things. And sometimes if, the, if they directly bring that into speaking, it can feel inauthentic, like you're talking over me, like you're performing at me instead Mm -hmm. of having a conversation with me. And I, and you are one of the very few that I've seen that can both bring the, the good of what stage acting has taught you into your performance as a speaker without some of those hangups of like just overly emoting or overly gesturing. Mm -hmm. Is that just something you kind of got lucky with and, And you always wanted your performances to be grounded anyway, or did you intentionally think, okay, some of this acting training I need to, I need to shed. And some of it I need to bring with me as a speaker. Yeah.
0: I think it goes back to being honest about the room that you're really in. I've been really lucky to get to act on stage in front of 2000 people at the Gershwin theater, which is the, literally the largest house on Broadway, the largest number of seats on Broadway. I have also gotten to act in little 200 seat theaters. And I think what's really important is, you know, my job as an actor is to connect with someone, whether it's my scene partner or the audience and change them. If I'm in a play, what I, what I was taught at least is when I'm acting in a play, it's never about me. If you, if there's an actor who's worried about what to do with their hands or worried about how they are saying a certain line or any of these things that we might get nervous about, that actor's thinking about themselves and it is never about you. It's never about you as an actor. It is always about your scene partner because in life, In life, we always want things from people, whether we want them to accept us and love us or whether we want them to do something for us or we are always wanting something, some sort of action or validation or whatever it may be from someone else. So as an actor, when I'm talking to a scene partner... I shouldn't be thinking about myself at all. I should only be looking at them and thinking about what it is that I want from them, what I need from them, what I need them to do or understand or validate. Um, So my only job on stage as an actor, I think, is to know that, connect with them and to learn something about them. That If I'm truly listening every single day I do the show, I'm going to learn something new about my scene partner that I didn't know before I stepped on stage, even if it's just like, oh, they have a freckle under their eye that I never noticed before today or whatever it may be. Uh, When I translate that to being a speaker on stage, I think it's just that your scene partner has changed. Now my scene partner is the audience. My scene partner, I have maybe a couple hundred scene partners scattered throughout the audience. Uh, And so if my only job is to connect with them in real life, enact change in them, being big and grand isn't going to, isn't going to make that happen. Um, it, you know, And it depends. Maybe if I'm, if I'm in an arena, I might need to be larger with my gestures than I would if I was in a, a school gymnasium but I'm only doing what is necessary to connect with and enact change in my scene partner.
1: Yeah, I love that kind of selfless approach that it's not about you, it's, it's about the audience, uh, you know, which you kind of defined as your scene partner. I, I, I want to bring up another aspect of your speaking that I see you do so beautifully and I see others who are well-intended not quite get it right, which is, you know, you talk about your personal story, your lived experience of being someone with, you know, who's legally blind, who has autism, and you do it in a way in which, you know, the story is a roller coaster. There are elements of the story that are sad, and yet we never feel sad for you. Even if there are moments of sadness, we never feel sorry for you. We never feel sad for you as someone hearing your story. I've seen so many speakers who have a great story. It's an understandably sad story. But as they're telling it, you kind of feel sad for them. You feel like they're not, they haven't quite worked through it mm. themselves. Is this, is this something you feel like you've been intentional about that you want to tell the roller coaster of that experience that you've had, but you also want it to be an uplifting journey.
0: Yeah, I think
1: I'm going to give two answers. One is that
0: the first answer is that I think I've just never felt sad for myself. Um, I have seen so many speakers, so many plays, so many read, so many books where it almost feels as if the person is using it as their own personal therapy. Uh, and I really dislike seeing that. I, I, hate that. So I try really hard for that not to be what I do. I think my book was that I think that I fail in some ways I failed with my book and that my book was my own personal therapy, uh, in a way that I hope I hope I don't repeat again and I hope my speeches aren't. Um, But I've never felt sad for myself. Um, And so I think that helps in that when I'm speaking, hopefully people don't feel overly sad for me. I also think part of it is intentional and comes from the disability community, the disability rights community. Um, A lot of times people will feel sad for a person with a disability for not like (laughs) you get up and there's this, there's this idea, which I sometimes come at odds with when it comes to public speaking, it's hard for me to figure out how to merge these two things as an inspirational speaker. But there's this idea in disability culture of inspiration porn. And what inspiration porn is, is when someone with a disability is called inspiring for waking up in the morning and brushing their teeth or getting out of bed and choosing mm-hmm. to live another day. And people in the disability community really despise that and have really trained all the other people in the disability community, myself included, to avoid that at all costs. That that it's actually like,
1: It's like, hey, you're setting the bar way too low.
0: Exactly. One, you're setting the bar way too low. And two, there's almost this, you know, people will often say to someone with a disability, like, oh my gosh, if I, if I, had, to use a wheel, if I had to use a wheelchair every day, I don't know how I could live with that. Um, and what that inadvertently tells the person with the disability is your life is not worth living. If I lived your life, I don't know how I would be able to live like that. Which it's well intentioned. It's the intention is you are you have so much perseverance that you're able to live this life that I would never want to live. But the accidental impact that that can have is your life is sadder than mine, your life is lesser than mine, your life might not actually be worth living. Um, so the balancing act then becomes how do you become, how do you become an inspirational speech as an inspirational speaker where the inspiring part of my story, I hope isn't, Hey, I have autism. I'm legally blind. And yet I woke up to live another day. And yet I, and yet I do whatever it is that I do. Hopefully, hopefully the inspiring part of my speech is the perseverance, the perseverance to change systems, um, that, you know, there's nothing wrong with a person with a disability, nothing about a person with a disability need should be cured or fixed necessarily. There's, they're a whole perfect human being, just the way they are, that actually what we need to fix is society. We need to make it so society is more accepting and inclusive and accessible And so I think that it's that framing in my speeches that I'm not framing it as, hey, here is, here's what I did. Here's why I am a great role model for you all to look up to, because I don't see myself. (laughs) I don't think that I've done anything other than try to survive. Like I've just Mm -hmm. done what the bare minimum that I need to do. I think I'm a really lazy person and I've done the bare minimum that I need (laughs) to do to figure out okay, how can I survive? How can I provide for my family? Um, which anyone would do. But I think it's that reframing of, this isn't about me. This is about society mm-hmm. and how we can all change society together. How, how we can all become more accepting and loving and make make a world that embraces everyone
2: better. I like how you used, yeah, your very unique story Uh, you pulled everything out that needed to be pulled out in order to make it generalized for others. Like, okay, this is how you experienced this struggle, this challenge. We put these labels on it. And so it becomes more inspiring in some ways or or that sort of thing, not to downplay anything you've been through, but just to say that it sounds like you found a, a great way to then universalize it to the rest of the folks who are listening and going, okay, that was the way that he struggled. Well, I know the way I struggle. And yet the parallel is that I can do those things too. Well, and that's all Josh ships doing youth speaker university sign up. That yep. is all. That's,
0: that's all Josh is doing with chapter uh, five, I think. Is you it uh, with <laughs> me, we, uh, or me, we, you that uh, Josh gave me that awesome format that the speech should always start, start with me, then be generalized to we, and then be really specific to you as an individual in the audience that's yeah, yeah. all Josh is doing <laughs> but I'm glad that I've been able to learn it and hopefully implement it
1: well you did the hard work i mean the the sure there's the, there's there's some some wisdom in the framework but the really brutally hard work is you know getting into the nitty-gritty of your talk and saying okay how do i do that most most speakers i run across who are even quite good they have me but rarely a we or a you or not, or not an explicit you. It's Mm -hmm. sort of, well, let me, let me talk for 45 minutes about my lived experience. And uh, yeah, I'll leave it up to you to figure out how that applies to your life. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think as a speaker, we, we have to not only curate how we tell our story so that it's, you know, interesting, intriguing, heartbreaking, hilarious, all of that, but we also have to go ahead of our audience and do the difficult work of weeding through the things and saying here here are here are the handful of lessons here are the things now you need to contextualize it to your life your situation what you're going through but but here they are i'm not going to force you to dig through the clutter and try to find the gold mm-hmm. i'm going to i'm going to deliver it right to you
0: and i think for my speech the easy way- the easy part is people who feel different, people who have felt excluded or underestimated in whatever way, um, or if for, for whatever reason, just feel like outcasts. That's the really easy part. It uh, The harder part for me is the people who actually feel really great in their lives, feel really confident, mm. feel like they fit in really well. Um, and, f- and feel as though, you know, they don't feel like outcasts. They don't feel that different, at least in the school setting, if if I'm speaking at a school. And so the harder part for me has been helping them realize they're actually, they're actually the ones with all the power. They actually are the awesome leaders. They are the leaders everyone else is looking up to and that they are, they are the really powerful ones that have the ability to make that kid who maybe doesn't have many friends that they hang out with or doesn't, doesn't have that many, doesn't feel like they belong. They are the ones who are really awesome leaders and, and can have the power to really change society and make us all feel included.
1: Do you you feel like you've cracked that code on how you can kind of speak to all those groups?
0: I'm trying I think sometimes, on some days I do, some days I don't. It's not always there yet, but... Um, I, have another,
1: I have another framework for you, Mickey. Go for it. I don't have a specific idea, but some of the best... Uh, you'll see the parallel here in a moment. Uh, the, the on-ramp might seem a little unusual, but the on-ramp is this. Some of the best bullying speakers I've seen, mm-hmm. they do a great job of speaking to all three parties in the incident. Mm-hmm. So here are the three parties. There's the bully, mm-hmm. right? That's the easiest person to demonize, you know, a kid who bullies others. But there's, but there's something going on in their heart too that's kind of pushing them to think, this is a way in which I can deal with my anxiety or... Yeah, or- hurt
0: people, hurt people. And that yeah. the only reason you would bully someone else is if you felt so little control in your own life that you felt the need to try to control someone else because... And I also think we. Sorry to interrupt you. I also think that um, whatever we say to other, however cruel we are, whatever we say to other people, we are always far more cruel to ourselves than we are to other people. And that if if someone is not being kind or accepting to someone else, they're probably being far less kind and accepting to themselves.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So we 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 have the. The bully, Mm -hmm. the bullied, and then the bystander. Yeah, and so when you when you kind of talk about exclusion, I go, you know, maybe maybe there's a similar three party system in place where you have you know you have individuals that exclude others, you have the person getting excluded, and then you have kind of the neutral parties that watch this and and they either. Say nothing because they're like, I'm not sure what to say. I don't quite know how to deal with this. So I wonder if maybe you could. I'm just curious what it would look like to maybe take a similar approach and go, what you know, who are all the parties when when someone is feeling excluded? And it's not you know, bullying is often from a person. Exclusion can also, as you talk about with universal design, it can be com- from sort of a system or you know something just the way that's our been society in, has always been just correct society. Yeah. But that, yeah, that could be an interesting approach. That's great. Uh, let's, for the, for the OCD among us, myself included, let's, let's circle back to the, those four stages of a book. So we talked about kind of getting the book deal. Mm-hmm. We talked about writing the book. Now let's talk about this moment where you turn in the manuscript to your editor at the publishing house and a couple months later, you open up that attached uh, Microsoft Word document, and there's just there's notes, there's strike throughs, there's red everywhere. Talk to us about that experience and what that was like, and what you learned from that. Yeah, I had a
0: really unique experience here in that my publisher approaches publishing a little bit differently and i think i can, i can say this without this isn't a jab against them i uh, um they this is how the owner of the publishing company the head of the publishing company openly speaks about their business model is that they are a quantity over quant, quantity over quality publisher uh, that they their business model that has been really successful for them is to publish as many books as quickly as they can that are all going to appeal to really niche niche audiences. So when I received those edits back, there actually were very few. They were almost all just grammar, spelling, punctuation, um, adjusting punctuation to fit their specific... Um, model Uh, and then there were maybe one or two places where they edited for continuity where they made minor changes to a sentence to have better continuity Hmm. that was it in hindsight Mm. I really wish that when we received that that I had thought, hey, I wonder if it's beneficial for me here to hire my own editor. I wish that I had reached out to I found editors on my own, reached out to them, explained to them, this is how my publisher works, which is awesome, but I really would love a more highly edited book uh, and asked if I could just hire them as a freelance editor to edit my book for me, Um, but I didn't. So, so my book was actually really unedited. My, my wife did a lot of editing for me, which was great. But, you know, my wife is so close to me that she's not seeing things from a truly outside eye. Um, So that, that's how that, that part of my experience went.
1: I think yeah I think that's quite wise you know when when I'm advising authors and they're saying why shouldn't I just self publish this thing mhm you know what is what is a you know going and getting a traditional book deal and all the hoops I got to jump through and yeah. all the begging people to take a chance on me like why don't I just write the check myself and do it you know having that key editor is often one of the tally marks I can put in a major publisher's side
2: Mm -hmm.
1: because at some of these major publishers, you have folks that have worked on hundreds of books, Mm -hmm. dozens of which have done very well, and they begin to form this crystallized intelligence and this pattern recognition where they can go, oh, you know, Six years ago, I had a similar book with a similar aim. It didn't quite hit when it released, and here's why here's what was well intended in the content or the structure mm-hmm. that wasn't quite executed on and So I think you know your advice to others that you should have an a player who's an editor mm-hmm. and and hopefully you get that from your publisher, and even if you don't, you should take you know that responsibility upon yourself and try to go find that person because in the long run you'll look back and and be glad that you did such yeah let's talk about the publishing the promoting of the book the day you know the the pub day is a can be a euphoric day but it it can also be a day that has a lot of mixed emotions with what you expect is going to have you know oprah is going to call you day one Uh of course and all these like you know fantasies we can kind of whip up into our mind there can be a lot of comparison and joy and uh, then fear and w- what's happening so talk us talk us through the roller coaster of publishing and promoting the book once it's out
0: yeah so I was really excited I had set up all of these book events for myself um, I was really amazed with how many replies I got to my emails for book events I was do I did a sold out book event at Strand Bookstore in New York. I was doing a book event at New York Public Library with Lincoln Center. I did a book event at Town Hall Seattle. I I, nearly every book event that I wanted to do. I got. So I was really excited about this. And they'd all been set up six months in advance. The day before my pub day, I get an email not from my, <laughs> not from my publisher, who I love, but from uh, Town Hall Seattle, which was the first book event that I was doing, letting me know that they had just received an email from the publisher that there would be no books available
2: oh, for no. sale at the oh, event.
0: No. <laughs> so I said, "Huh, that is so interesting." <laughs> let me CC them in this email <laughs> and try to find out what's going on. And I guess as sometimes happens with, you know, with, with first time authors is that the publisher has to make a decision about how many books they're going to print mm. in that initial run. And, uh, cause they don't want to be stuck with hundreds of thousands of books that they paid for that, Ten years have later haven't sold yet. So, the publisher had made their best estimate on what was needed for this initial run, and then, um, oh, what is the publication called? Publisher Weekly or something? Um, had done a starred review of a starred review of my book and picked it as one of their like weekly. I'm going to forget the term, but weekly pick or one of their weekly things picks of a book Um, and Amazon and Barnes and Noble, I guess have robots. Josh knows all about how to make AI robots that do all this brilliant work. Josh is an AI robot. I mean, I'm sure he is. (laughs) There's no way he could be this brilliant and not be an AI robot. Um, So (laughs) Barnes and Noble and Amazon somehow have this robot that predicts how well a book is going to do and instantly buys However many books they think they can sell, and they bought every book, and they bought this these books. I guess a week before they planned to wow. mail these books out to all the events. So then here I am, Bezos. up all night. Also, 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 I'd created these. I'd had had these um, really huge, awesome, like five foot tall by three foot wide. Yarn bombed, crocheted versions of my book covers <laughs> that had been mailed out to all of these, all the like top, my top 10 independent bookstores across uh, the country. I'm to sorry, try did, the, you,
1: did you say yarn bomb? Y-
0: have you ever seen the tree outside? You'll see like a tree covered in yarn. Someone has knit a sweater for a tree almost. See, in, a, in bro- Oklahoma,
1: ends. where I grew up, we just egged houses. We didn't yarn houses. What is it's this? Seattle. It, Jesse knows. Yeah, Jesse's yeah.
0: in Portland. Jesse knows. All right. <laughs> you you hippies
1: and your yarn.
0: Yeah. So here they don't egg bomb things. They, We're they, bomb them. they knit sweaters, knit nice little sweaters for bus stops and fences and trees. <laughs> so I had these sent out to all these independent bookstores and had, and for the other ones I'd made these autism acceptance month displays at, on Vistaprint, uh, these awesome Autism Acceptance Month displays on Vistaprint that had, you know, QR code with resources for mm. uh, Autism Acceptance Month and where to, where to find more resources on Autism Acceptance Month and uh, a suggestion of awesome books written by autistic authors. Mm. Mine obviously included <laughs> prominently. I'd done all this work and invested for what was for me all, all my money into sending these out to these independent bookstores to make buzz. None of these independent bookstores were able to order the book. In fact, when they went online to order the book from the publisher, there wasn't even an option to backorder them or to order it and have it ma- It was just out of stock, no ability to order these books. I swear I did not sleep for a week. Oh all this brilliant work I had done to create buzz was for nothing. All these book events that I'd set up, they could not get the book. They could not get copies of the book. And the independent bookstores that I'd done all this, these marketing ideas for could not get the book. So I didn't know what to do. Um, but, you know, even in our worst moments when we feel like everything has failed, the book events happened. They created a lot of buzz for my book. A lot of people were very excited um, and found ways to order the book anyway. Even though the books were not available at the event, they still found ways to order the books. Um, I went on on Vistaprint and created... You know how you order labels for packages and things? I ordered these labels that had the logo from my book and uh, I... Um, signed them all and sent out hundreds of these to all the bookstores that I had previously reached out to saying, Hey, I'm so sorry that the book sold out. It was so much more popular than we expected. When you can order the books, here are, um, here are signed stickers to go inside the cover for you. Wow. So it all worked out in the end not you know i think one thing i say often is i think you are always able to achieve your goals i think every single person on earth we are you are always able to achieve your goals it will never happen in the timeline that you first expected it to and it will never happen in the way that you imagined it would it will never look look the way you pictured it in your head it won't happen in the timeline you pictured um And so, yeah, the book events didn't look the way I pictured them to happen in my head. People didn't get physical copies of the book in their hand on the timeline. I first expected them to, but it all worked out in the end and was just fine. And whenever you're going through these moments of stress, oh my God, this is all, what was the point of the last two years of getting this book to happen? This is all, I promise six months later, Hmm. you aren't even going to, be thinking about it six months later it will have had zero effect it it will not not have drastically affected your life nearly as much as you assumed it would in the moment
1: it's a great attitude to have about the whole situation mickey good sir we thank you for your time we thank you for your insights this has been delightful so good. Uh, thank you so much for having me